And so we have all had the good fortune of running into this. Um, I don't know why you came. Maybe you don't know why you came at this point. <laughs> but what good fortune. I mean, this is a small percentage of the planet in this room. There are maybe other groups of people practicing like we are. But this is a really um, courageous and um, committed act to seeing the truth of reality, to seeing your own process, to sitting still. It's not our conditioning. It's not our Western conditioning, that's for sure. So I just want to want to hand it to you for coming um, and doing this for yourself, doing this for for everybody. I actually read there's this book called Walking on Lotus Flowers. It's about um, Buddhist women, and it was written in 1996. I almost feel like it needs a rewrite, but I love this um, quote, and this is from Annie Tenzin Palmo, who some of you might know as the woman who lived in the cave for 12 years. Um, she said, uh, is she English? She's a Westerner. That's, oh, yeah, she's English. And she went and lived in a cave in Tibet for 12 years in solitude and silence. And she says, I like to have periods of solitude. <laughs> That's a long period of solitude. <laughs> but this is not because I do not like people. In solitude, I feel a greater sense of identity with the world. I do not forget the world at all. On the contrary, I find these periods of isolation are beneficial in helping me to be open in my relationships with other people and considerate of the fact that there are other people. It's so easy when we contract in our small mind to forget and feel very much alone um, and just be in our own processes, right? So I think it's such a beautiful sentiment that her being alone was actually for the benefit of all beings, right? It wasn't just for her benefit. And so I wanna, I wanna talk a little bit about, you know, why we meditate um, and, and, and also to um, combine that with Dhamma as nature, Dharma as nature, and we're in the perfect place to do that. <clears throat> and also, just really to acknowledge first day retreat experience. You know, so I don't know who here is feeling tired. Yeah, that was almost everyone. Who here is feeling restless? <laughs> Who here is feeling like they would like it to be a little bit different? There's something they'd really like to have that would make their experience better. Who here is really hating this experience? Oh, good. You probably wouldn't tell me if you were. <laughs> Who here is having some doubt as to whether they made the right decision to spend the week this way? So first day, second day, third day, fourth day, every day we can bump into, you know, these hindrances, we call them in the practice, um, that sort of block, that blocks our ability to really be present because we're wanting something to be different versus 
the way it is right now. And the, the biggest, the majority of hands that went up was sleepy. And the invitation is just to let yourself be sleepy. It's okay. You don't have to perform for us, right? It's really kind of nice if we, if we look into the sensations of tiredness. It's like, okay, what does sleepy feel like in the body? A little heavy. Maybe the eyes feel heavy. The mind may be a little foggy. That's okay, right? When we break it down like that, not so bad. It's actually quite pleasant in a way when we allow it and meet it. So whatever your experience is right now, in this moment, listening to this talk or through the rest of the day, with sleepiness or agitation or anxiety or doubt or worry or anxiety, whatever it is, giving permission um, to this mind, body, heart, full acceptance for that to be okay. And if I were to ask each of you individually why you came to the practice, you might have slightly different answers. We all come through, mostly, not all, some people come through to the door of practice because they're really happy and they think it's a great idea. But oftentimes we come to practice because we're suffering in some way. Maybe life's not going so right. Maybe we're having a hard time in a relationship or we have a we have an illness or somebody close to us died or um, we're trying to figure out our life like who am I, what am I, what is the purpose you know oftentimes we'll come to practice and sort of slow down and sit still to try to figure things out oftentimes or at least to at least to say why why sometimes it's why me you know sometimes it's why the planet Sometimes it's why society, why culture, why politics, right? We come because we want to maybe have some sense of ease and freedom and liberation around where we're contracting in our lives. And certainly if anyone is paying attention to the news, you know, we have the opportunity to contract every 10 minutes throughout every single day, if not every 10 seconds throughout every single day. Right? We have that golden opportunity to really like be miserable and blame and be angry and grieve and have sorrow. You know, we're given that. No problem. Open the news. And so what do we do with that? You know, what do we what do we do with all of that? And, in, you know, in those very sort of cliched ways as well, put on the oxygen mask for yourself first. Right? Oftentimes I fly a lot. And it's funny how when the, the stew, I don't know what we call them anymore, the flight attendant, thank you. When the flight attendant is there giving us our life-saving tools, people are putting on their headphones, like look, reading their book, looking down. They're giving us life-saving tools, and we like tune them out. <laughs> right? And so I oftentimes feel like the practice, the practice has life-saving tools. And so when we say, yeah, take care of yourself first, whatever, what does that even mean, right? 
It starts here. What does that mean? And so in terms of what the mindfulness practice, what Vipassana insight practice is saying is when we can really know what's going on here, when we can have direct experience with, do you know what sadness feels like? Or is it just a historical thought in the mind? Do you know what loneliness feels like? Or is it a story about abandonment in your earlier years? Do we even know what joy or happiness feels like that isn't conditioned by external sources of getting something conditioned by consumerism and, and, and greed? So the practice is saying, oh, what does it, what is the actual experience in this present time awareness of, like I said, tiredness? Can I meet that? Can I sit there here with that? Is it okay? Or do I always need to change it, fix it, move it, replace it, control it? Right? And so it's natural to look for some relief. Natural. This is is our survival. In a way, we can only take so much, right? And we need the release release valve. And the easiest release valves now are social media, Netflix binge-watching, grabbing drugs or alcohol, food, other people, right? We, we, this, is, this is a tendency. And we try to patch together moments of ease. We patch together moments of relief. But it's not the ultimate. It's not the ultimate ease or relief. As I'm sure many of you have seen. They're temporary. And so what the practice that um, was offered to us and I want to talk about the history of that a little bit. It's really about this greater, ultimate freedom, relief, ease. And it doesn't have to look like, what? I'm free, right? We're not looking for some exalted, out-of-the-mind, out-of-the-body experiences. That not, that's not what this practice is about. It's really, it's really more about its ease, its peace. And, there, and, and again, going back to, you know, sitting, just sitting out on a chair out there and seeing this big picture. For me, I almost would have to fight to be mad at that. You know, I would have to fight to not like that. Or to at least feel the body, the nervous system untangle. And then, of course, the mind is going to kick in and have its um, stories around it. But this is a lot of what, when I say the nature as, the Dharma as nature, oftentimes Dharma translated as nature, um, I want to talk about. But first to lay a little bit of historical ground, and you know, most of you probably know this, but again, it's like the flight attendant. Maybe listen again anyway, 
because we are always changing, right? We hear from fresh, I heard teachings, you know, 20 years ago that I heard on a different level, and when I hear them now, I might hear something different, I might have a different understanding. I might be able to place it or utilize it in a different way than I did when I first started my practice, the middle of my practice, where I am now, and I'm gonna hear it differently again in five to 10 years. So the history of this practice, um, you know, we are from a a Buddhist lineage, um, the lineage of Siddhartha Gautama, who had his enlightenment, his Paranibbana, about 2,600 years ago. And this was a person who, um, as far as we know, um, as far as scholars and um, academics can tell us, was a a wealthy man, there's debate around prince, landowner, um, but well, wealthy man, and had all that he wanted, all the riches, all the gold, all the women, lived in a palace. I don't know what a palace 2,600 years ago looked like. It might look similar to, I don't, yeah, I don't know, it'd be interesting to see. Um, I didn't find joy and happiness there. That the emptiness. I'm going to really abbreviate this story. There's a lot in it, but I'll just make it. So didn't find the joy and happiness. Felt like there had to be more. So left and went on the road of asceticism, and practiced with a bunch of different teachers, and got to a point where he was actually so emaciated, and so um, he had renounced so much, even to the point where it said he was only eating one grain of rice a day because eating was just too much of a sense pleasure. So it got to the point where he was almost dying. It said you could see his spine from the front. His hair was falling out in patches, very sick. And it's like, well, this isn't the way either, right? This isn't working. I'm not waking up. Um, So Matthew pointed to this idea of a middle path last night. Dhammachaka Pavatna, the middle path. The Dharma wheel began to turn. And so from there, when he realized that was his awakening, he had a memory of being a child under an apple tree and had this moment of complete ease, again, that ease piece. It wasn't a moment of, he was at a festival, so there were all these other kids, I'm sure, running around eating what cotton candy or whatever version of cotton candy there was 2,600 years ago and playing games. But he ended up sitting under a tree and felt the most joy he ever felt. And so he had a remembrance of that. And decided that um, he wasn't going to teach it to other beings because he didn't think that we would understand. We meaning all humans. He said humans have too much dust in their eyes to be able to actually see clearly the truth of reality. And then he was kind of um, poked and prodded by one of the Brahmins. Somebody, somebody comes to him and says, you must teach, you must teach, you must teach. And there's a little bit of an argument. And ultimately the Buddha ends up teaching for 40 years. Um, and, and the teachings are the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And the First Noble Truth um, basically points to this nature of reality. It points to all things 
are born, they get sick, they age, and they die. All beings. And we can watch that here with the trees, with the sitting on the sitting on the creek slash river this afternoon. I ended up sitting very close to it and just watching. Um, the water was pretty rough where I was, and just all these bubbles. There are all these bubbles, and then they bump into a branch or a rock and they burst, right? So it's like, and I was thinking, you know, the bubbles probably aren't that bummed out. <laughs> They're fine. They were born. They lived a little bit. They hit, a, they hit another piece of nature. And then their existence changed. They didn't necessarily disappear, it just changed. Nature, reality, change is imminent. And so this, these, these teachings, so the Buddha then goes on to teach, like I said, for 2,600 years. Um, trying to think which direction I want to go. Uh, so here we here we sit with these beautiful teachings. We we call it vipassana is the um, Pali word. Insight is something you may have heard. Um, we're now calling it mindfulness. Um, started in northern India, and the diaspora was Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka, and then it went up through all of Asia. And you know, like any diaspora, anything it touches again, this is nature. Anything condi- that is conditioned and touched by something else will change. So my skin is my skin, but when it's touched by the cold, then it's my cold skin, right? So the conditions change. Right now I'm quite hot. The conditions change within a few moments. So this tradition, which was born somewhere, connected with all of these other regions and parts of the world, and through necessity for understanding, through necessity... Um, the Buddha actually said, teach it and teach the teachings in the idiom of the people. The idiom of the people, so that the people, whoever it touched, would understand. So when he was speaking to a layperson, a shepherd, uh, a courtesan, a monastic, the teachings would be slightly different so that it would go in, so that we would understand, so that we would know. And so this natural process of all the places that it went, and then now here we sit, you know, in New Mexico, with an ancient Asian tradition that has been changed. You know, our Western minds are sort of like psychology and science, right? So a lot of psychology and science moved into the mindfulness movement. And so here, here we sit with this amalgamation of so many different um, histories and ancestors and traditions and ways of being in this practice. And I have a deep appreciation both from where it came from and all of the people that have touched it along the way. And then I, I want to, you know, really bring us here again. 
Jessica brought it up last night, but also the people who lived here, right? And and there's there's some um, not quite sure of the history, but it was nomadic peoples, nomadic indigenous peoples, and so I could I can really feel a sense of that when I walk around here. And so I just want to give some respect to that again, so that we realize really anywhere you live, whether it's Brooklyn or Chicago or LA or anywhere that you live, you know, we tend to forget who was there first. <laughs> so just a, a little knock-knock memory. You know, this is all, this being that's here right now is um, made of many, many, many different processes. And so again, to me, like that speaks to the dharma of nature, speaks to change. So one of my... Um, one of my big fascinations with our tradition are a, um, a lineage of monastics called the Tudongs. And the Tudongs were based in the forests of Thailand. And this is a multi-century tradition. The Tudongs lived in the forest. Um, they did not have a monastery. Um, and they would just, they would practice. And I want to tell you, if they have, there were basically 13 um, rules for the Tudongs. And the Qigong's, like I said, are, are a Thai tradition, and they, the only thing that they owned or had, and this is still true for a lot of the Theravada uh, monastics, um, are their robes, their alms bowl, which was basically about this size, still is, um, and an umbrella with a mosquito net on it, so there was some practicality to what they had, and then access to medicine. So really only owning four things, and they would go off and and wander, mostly alone. Um, they would usually have a teacher that they would come back to, but mostly alone, wandering through the forest. And, you know, I did a little wander through the forest the other day, and it was interesting to watch the multiplicity of experiences that went on through this body, being so exposed and vulnerable. It was the day when nobody was here. There was one person on the land besides me. And it was actually uh, the hermit, <laughs> hermitess. Um, and so there wasn't anybody that was going to check the board to make sure I made it back. <laughs> right? And so I was out there. Um, I tried to stay on trail. And as you've seen, anyone that's gone out there, the blue, the blue dots on the trees and on the rocks and on, you know, to follow. And I got to a point where I was really noticing, whoa, I haven't seen a blue dot in a while. You know, maybe it's time to turn around. But this, this mind that I live in wants, thinks there's always something better over there, right? So I know if I go a little farther, I'm going to find that clear forest pool. And who knows, you know, what else I'll see. I'll definitely see the wild horses because there are wild horses up there. And I might see the mama um, elk, elk, elk. I might see the mama elk that people have apparently seen some, the myth is that maybe she's pregnant or maybe she just birthed a baby. So I thought, okay, if I just walk a little further, you know, but then wisdom, wisdom kicked in and said, (laughs) you might get lost, so maybe turn around. Um, But while I was out there, I I actually thought of the two dogs while I was out there was just this vulnerability and, and fear, you know, it's like fun slash fear, that experience, you know, where for me, it's not that fun if it's not a little scary. 
I need there to be some edge in something, and that's what I think roller coasters are about and haunted houses are about, and you know, all those things that makes it so fun. And so I was really experiencing that fun slash fear. But the fear was very big. And I think about these Tudons, and I'll, and I'll tell you a couple stories, you know. But they were in places where there were, where were tigers and um, poisonous serpents, and obviously the possibility of starvation and malaria, hence the nets, and, you know, all kinds of things when we're out there alone. And those were, those are real fears, right? This could really happen. But the reason they went out and practiced in that way was not to avoid fear, it was to confront fear and to work through fear through this emotional body. Wow. So the the thirteen they, they so wearing rag robes and using only three of them. So they were called too bad. <laughs> there was not a third, fourth, or fifth. The begging alms ball, um, not omitting any house when begging. I think this is really interesting because I'm sure that they had their little neighborhood, you know, their little town that they went to. And after a while, you might go, oh, well, they're the ones with the, the chutney and the good doll and the, you know, maybe their food's a little better at that house. And uh, that, that food, nah, it, it could use some work. And I could imagine, you know, wanting to pick and choose in that way. But one of their rules is not omitting any. So deep renunciation around choice in that way, but also when they came to knock on somebody's door, they were giving a gift. It was a deep gift of generosity for, I can't, you know, the, the villagers to have um, a monastic, or, or actually not a monastic, an ascetic, knock on their door. Eating only once a day. That was both practical, but it was also about sense pleasure. It was practical because they would only go on alms once a day. Eating from only from the bowl. Eating no second helpings. Eating in the forest. Eating at the foot of a tree. Living in the open air living in a cemetery, being satisfied with whatever dwelling one receives, and here's the, here's the doozy, sleeping in a sitting position and never lying down. So talk about commitment to the practice. And I'm not saying we have to do that, and I'm not saying that we need to compare our practice to that, but it really is quite, to me, quite beautiful that level of commitment. And, and what I loved about going on the walk today was, you know, I saw a few people sitting under trees, sitting on rocks, sitting on, two dogs. Yeah, we're two dogs. We just happen to have a cook and beds, and, you know, maybe the heaters aren't great, but it's not this. Um, and meditation was the core of their practice. They weren't scholars, because there were the scholars that lived in the monasteries, and they did a lot of study but what they believed was that actually no, doing the practice is where the root of, of seeing clearly came. They knew that if they studied the Dhamma without practicing it, they would remain unaware of its deeper meaning. 
they realized that the value of the Dhamma was not to be found in reading and studying, but in training the mind through the Tudong life. Finally, they understood that the best place to study the Buddha's teachings was not in a comfortable monastery, but in their own school, their own university, the heart of the forest, a grove, the shade of a single tree, the cemetery, the open air, the slope of a mountain, the foot of a mountain, a valley. They believed that such places were recommended by the Buddha as a supreme university. So I feel kind of lucky that we're at all of those, except for the cemetery. But um, I don't know if you've noticed the dead mouse that's right out here. Have some of you noticed? So that mouse, um, I, was, I sat retreat last week, and the retreat before that was a men's retreat. And that mouse has been there since the men's retreat, so it's about two and a half weeks old. It's just starting to decay now because I think it's been so cold. But the retreat that I was on, people started putting flowers on it, and then someone put a pine cone next to it, and now it has a stone that says R.I.P. And it's head. I don't know if you've noticed that. Um, and there was also um, an elk upstream. Is it, up, it was upstream, up or down? I, I don't. That um, was here last season that died, and over time they were, you know, part of the practitioner's practice would be to go out and watch. Um, this animal decay and, and now be part of the earth again. They, they came back after the snow and it's kind of scattered. The, the bones are kind of scattered. But So in a way, we do see the cemetery of the trees and you know we come up against the beauty and the harshness of, of reality, right? But again, the, the Buddha was pointing to this. Birth, old age, sickness, death. But it wasn't to make people go, oh, bummer, that super sucks. It's really to, when we can understand the truth of that, it's something like, no, 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 I won't age, I won't die, I won't get sick, right? The holding, 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 doesn't work, if anybody's noticed. (laughs) Doesn't work. So sort of like, okay, what happens when we let go of that a craving for something that will never happen. When we let go of that, the ease that we can land in. I'm suffering with a little bit of a head cold right now. <laughs> Trying to breathe. <clears throat> so as you might have seen today, I don't know what your days have been like. Maybe for some of you, um, it's been really easy and pleasant. I know for me now, my first few days of retreat are really nice. I can land pretty quickly because it's so chaotic out there. And I'm old enough to appreciate when I get to, when I get to not do something for a little while, but just really be in this body. And this mind, as kooky as it can get sometimes, it feels like a gift. So maybe maybe it's been like that for some of you. Uh, maybe it's been not so good, you know. We talked about it in the hindrances at the beginning. Um, 
So we can either, or we will experience things externally, right? Things going on outside of this skin, outside of this form. And then it collides with my internal world. You know, I kind of call it skin out, skin in. Because my external functioning in this nature body, because my mother's black, my father's Sicilian, I'm 53 years old. I'm a teacher. I have a 22-year-old son and a 19-year-old daughter. I married. You know, I have these identifiers, my, my skin-out identifiers, how I move through the world. And then skin in. You know, what if I worked with loneliness, <coughs> grief, confusion, sadness, fear? And the thing is, is the external world affects this, right? And this internal conditioning, history, biology, neurology, ancestry, epigenetics, right? All of the, the this affects that. Right, so we're in this constant conversation, constant contact with the external world and the internal world. External world, internal world. I want to tell you a, a little story that happened here last week um, for, for me. And it points a lot to my um, brown-bodied experience that I've walked in my whole life. Um, and also uh, female-identified experience. Um, one of my dear friends is the guiding teacher here. And so she asked, asked me to go walk up the hill um, because they've acquired some, some land up there that I'd never been on before. And so she said, well, go check it out. So I went during a walking period. I went up there to check it out. It's this beautiful meadow. I highly encourage going up there. You might not want to after I tell you this story, but um, it's beautiful. So it's a beautiful meadow and an old barn. Some of you might already have gone up there. It's up past the casitas, just over the hill. Beautiful barn, tin roof. It's falling down, so don't go in it. <laughs> it's dangerous. So I walked up there and I went through this barbed wire fence, which is okay to do, um, carefully, because I got some hair pulled out, too. But I started walking towards this barn, because I have a lot of curiosity for old structures and buildings. I find them really fascinating and interesting. So I'm walking towards it, and I hear this sound. And it sort of sounds like a drum, a little bit like a drum, but a metal drum. And it sort of goes kind of like that. No, there was five. That's what it was like. And so I said, okay, a little weird. You know, it didn't sound like the, a sound of an animal. So I kept walking towards it. And it got faster and steadier as I walked towards it. Um, and I got freaked out. I thought, for, my first thought was, okay, somebody's in there, and they just don't want me. They want to know, me to know that they're there and don't come any closer. So I um, very slowly turned around. <laughs> The old Joanna would have run really fast um, because I just have this fear mechanism of my body being harmed. Right? Um, and then I decided I happen to have my, my 
camera phone on me. <laughs> and I, so I decided, you know, I'm going to record this. Because I was not on silent retreat here. Um, it wasn't a silent retreat. It was a, a workshop training. Um, so I took, I, I decided to video it. Because I, to make sure it wasn't all in my mind. So when I turned around, it actually stopped. Then I said, okay, i got to check this out. So I turned around and started walking towards it again with my video camera on, and it happened again. I'm like, okay, and I can hear my breathing on the, on the camera. <laughs> and then, so I did that, and then I, I, I let some wisdom kick in and just say, it's okay, like the walk, you know, it's like, you're scared, you don't need to do this. I was not curious, I was only afraid. And so I came down and I talked to Katya. You know, Katya, I, she's the first person I saw, and I asked her if she'd ever heard that sound up there, and she said no. And then I talked to Aaron Treat, who's the guiding teacher here, and asked her if she'd ever heard it, and she said no. And then I asked Gary, the, who was the land manager, Fosley, if he'd heard it, no. I'm like, oh, shit. Okay, 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 okay. And they've gone up there at least 30 times, you know. So now I'm sure it's a ghost, and I'm sure it's a ghost of my ancestors. And I'm, I'm going to say this out loud, just because I'm being honest, but I was sure it was an ancestor of mine that had been lynched or something very, very scary in that barn. Right? So it went, it went there for me, just in my DNA. And the rest of the day I had a, a lot of fear arising, to the point where I was shaking, I was having tremors. Um, and uh, this training that I'm in had a lot to do with Kuan Yin chanting and bowing. And I started doing some of the Kuan Yin protection chants and just sort of talking to the ancestors and having some, and it, and it really sort of gave me confidence um, to be able to fall asleep and just to land. And then I decided I'd go back up again the next morning because I just had to. No, I went up with my friends and it didn't happen. My teachers, Tanisara and Kitasara, went up because I told them the story. It didn't happen. So this time I'm like, okay, they're talking to me. I'm special. The spirits are talking to me, so I need to go alone. So I went back up alone, and it happened again. And I recorded it again three more times. And so, yeah, fear, a lot of fear. And, and I wished I wasn't so afraid because other people were like, well, why didn't you walk up to it? And, well, you know, why weren't you curious? Anyway. I'm talking about, I'm hoping that you're understanding the connection between the nature of our minds and our conditioning, our society, our cultures, right? We get conditioned, external, internal process. So the next morning, Katya walks up to me. She said, I heard it. I was in the outhouse down the hill. I ran up there. She said, I figured you must be there because the sound was there. She ran up. She's like, Joanna's not here. She saw a woodpecker fly out of the barn. I don't know why a woodpecker's pecking on metal, because there's, there's no bugs in metal, right? Rest, I don't know. Um, so, there, so it was like, yeah, I felt such relief. But I was also, so it gave me a real big insight into the mind, right? So yeah, it, I can feel like, oh, silly Joanna, right? But no, my fear was real. That was real. Maybe the story around it had some extenuating circumstances, but my fear was real. And so I then, after she told me that, I went up there again. The noise was there, interestingly, when I, right when I went through the fence, but I got close to the barn and walked around the barn. And I still sort of, you know, had a little prayer for the ancestors and for, and for my fear. Um, 
But it was such a beautiful thing to kind of walk through. And it's sort of why the, the teachings of, you know, of the two dogs or of these practices are how close, how intimate can we allow ourselves to get to our experience prior to, you know, without needing to layer on the story. And the story is part of our experience too, right? But really for me was really like feeling into this racing heart, this, it was deeper than fear. It was, you know, it was, it was really quite beautiful at the same time. I wanted to engage with it. I didn't want to run away from it anymore because I've been running away from my fear for a long time, you know, trying to numb it in some way. And so it felt like quite a transformative experience for, for this typical, this kind of fear that I have and, and work with. I'm going to kind of wrap it up. It's funny, I bring these notes. I end up not really needing them so much. So I guess as a practice, you know, check out what happens for you as you move through this natural world, remembering this body, this aggregate body that's made up of flesh and bones and blood and guts and pus. And then this mind that has perception and thoughts and a consciousness, right? And feelings. So that's what this is made up of. And it's conditioned. And the conditions change. So check it out when you go from moments of, you know, really check out when you're in moments of ease. We tend to start really paying attention when we're in some heightened, terrible state. You know, when something's really wrong, we start to pay a lot of attention. You know, a lot of aversion or a lot of hatred or a lot of grief or something going on. But my, I'm going to ask you to also pay attention to when it's not there, the absence of those things. And what were the conditions that, what are, the, that are around you right now? And maybe it's because you're seeing something beautiful, so the conditions change. Maybe it's just that the body in this moment is not experiencing pain. So there's ease and peace. Right? So just check it out. Check out what's going on for you for the rest of the day. And I just want to close with a poem that's um, resonated a lot for me lately by a poet named Warsong Shire. And it just says, Later that night... I held an atlas in my lap, ran my fingers across the whole world and whispered, where does it hurt? It answered, everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. So, you know, really just looking at our practice as a response to our deeper hurts, and if they're not our individual hurts, but the universal hurts, the global hurts, the communal hurts, the ancestral hurts, right? can we respond to that? This is that compassion, the, the wisdom is knowing the truth of existence and reality. That's the wisdom. And the compassion is knowing how to respond to it. And the response is not shoving it away or telling it it's wrong. 
the response is showing up and saying, I see you, right? I see you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.